Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood, where brothers don't shake hands. Brothers got a hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How's it going? It's going well. How are you doing? Good, good. We just um, hanging out, recording a podcast, but you already knew that. Living the dream. Living the dream. So, so listen, uh, I wanna, yeah, I wanna, go ahead. before we even start, I want to tell you something uh, crazy that I just came across, or at least the craziest thing for me this week. So as you know, I work in finance. I read a lot of different financial things. Here's the one thing I learned this week that just blew my mind. Truffles. Are you familiar with Truffles. Like the mushroom? Yeah. Have you I ever had a truffle? Of, I've never had a truffle, no. I've heard of truffles. So I've never had a truffle either. Like my experience is basically all about what I've seen on the cooking shows that my wife generally tends to watch. But here's the crazy thing I learned. Like there's a ridiculous market for truffles because I had no idea that they're they're on, they're found underground and they cannot we cannot figure out, I guess, as like a human species, how to actually grow these in a controlled environment. So they are really rare. They use like specially trained dogs to find them, like in the woods of Italy. And I read this article where he's following this guy who's like a truffle dealer, which sounds sketchy, but it's apparently a legit thing. And he was talking about how he just got shipped in eight pounds at, for 20 grand. Whoa, that's yeah. like more expensive than gold. Cra- yeah, exactly. Like it's that's crazy, crazy actually. I have so this, this picture of like a guy out of the back of his trunk. And he's like, hey, kid, you want to try truffle? Yeah, it's basically that with a trench coat. Like he's That's got crazy. truffles packed up and in everywhere. Yeah, it's crazy. This has nothing to do with anything that we're going to talk about, but I just felt like I had to share truffle knowledge with somebody. That's pretty impressive. You know, I'm watching this TV show called uh, This Is Us. Have you heard of this show? I have heard of this show. Have you watched it? I haven't seen it, but my wife has seen it and has has spoken pretty highly about it. It's super good. But in this show, and I don't want to give any spoilers, but so there's a character in the show and he works in this, uh, he's like this super, like really wealthy character. And they finally kind of like explained what he does. And I guess he's like a commodity trader, but he does it based on like weather predictions. And it's funny because there's this whole thing in this one episode about how like he can't, like he can't explain it and nobody understands what he does. And I immediately was like, like Jesse. <laughs> Nobody knows what Jesse actually does. That's what I immediately thought. That is actually an accurate representation of my job. Yeah. That's yeah. very I well have, said. I have no idea what you do. I've seen where you work. I know it has to do with math and numbers and money, but I, I have no idea. That's pretty much it. I'll tell you what it doesn't have to do with truffles, which truffles. evidently is the industry I should be in. Maybe we should maybe we should dump this podcast and start a truffle business. Yeah, I mean, you guys have a dog. Has that dog ever, like, just unearthed truffles? No, but we found this weird mushroom thing in the backyard that looked like a big <laughs> loaf of bread. I ran it over with the lawnmower, and it just, like, flattened out. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. 
this has already exceeded my my expectations for me bringing up truffles. The the loaf of bread mushroom that's exceedingly yes. rare. Yeah, there was also over at mom and dad's house. There was a mushroom that looked like a leaf, and I almost let the dog eat it because I thought it was a leaf, and then I realized it was a mushroom, and it probably would have killed the dog. So I'm glad that I didn't let her eat it. You guys are exceptional pet owners, that's for sure. Yes. Yeah. So, so this is episode ten. Yes, it is. That's like a big episode, isn't it? I love that we've turned double digits. Double digits. Like when I number the episodes, I do three digits. So you can tell that I'm expecting this to be a long run podcast. Yeah. I'm like, just like when your odometer like turns over to a hundred thousand, like I'm excited for when we're at nine, nine, nine. I know. We're going to just like, we're just going to watch it and we're going to have this big deal episode and it's going to be exactly like every other episode. Yeah. There'll, there'll be a party, but it will just be you and I, which is basically yes. every episode that we have. Pretty much. Hey, who better to party with than your brother? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So, so what are we talking about in episode 10? We uh, we didn't really time it this way with episode 10, but we're going to start something sort of special. So um, Jesse and I have had a lot of really good feedback about uh, what we've kind of called blue-collar theology. And I, I don't know a great definition of that, but what, what our one of our goals is to take sort of theological concepts and to kind of um, distill them down into um, – packaging that is uh, something that the average listener or the average person can understand and get their head around. So, so far we've done that with kind of topical stuff. We talked about different things, different subjects, but what we're going to do um, sort of the first episode of each month is we're going to tackle a subject in systematic theology. Um, and it's going to be a little bit more kind of lecture style um, because there's a lot of information to present. But we really both uh, felt that it's important for us to be giving uh, our audience some meat to chew on. Um, not that our other episodes haven't been meaty, but um, we wanted to really make sure we're kind of bringing uh, sort of a robust, comprehensive look at the Christian faith to our audience. You know what else evidently tastes like meat? Truffles. I hate to Truffles. bring it up, but I'm, I'm just saying it again. No, I'm, It is. I'm with you. I love this idea, as we've talked about, because I really do, like yourself, have a passion for taking theology and turning it into right living. So a lot of times we talk about the fact that you cannot riv- live rightly. That's really hard to say. You cannot live rightly without thinking rightly. But just being really smart about something without translating it into actual action is really worthless. And we know that the Christian faith is one of the actions. So I am excited about getting into this kind of stuff and seeing how that can really translate into our hearts, into behavior that really creates a passion for God and a desire to follow after the Lord Jesus very closely. Yeah. And if you're a person who's listening to this and you hear systematic theology and your eyes kind of glaze over, let me just give you an example of why this is important. So when we talk about like child development, there's different stages that a child goes through as they're learning things. And one of the more important parts of the child's development is they sort of build this conceptual framework of the world. Um, They call it the grammar stage. They learn a language about how to understand the world. Um, And we've joked in, you know, we've joked uh, about kind of like the sort of internal language of our family. And when I was kind of coming into the family, um, I had to learn the different words that people use. I had to understand how things are used. And so we kind of understand this. And so if you think about it that way, what systematic theology does is it helps you build a framework um, for your faith. And then when things come at you, you have a grid and a framework to plug them into. So for example, if you were to ask your average kind of college student um, why homosexuality is wrong, 
they might maybe be able to give you some talking points. But for them to be able to really plug that into a framework uh, that they don't have is really difficult. But once we get to the doctrine of anthropology, for example, you're going to see that all of a sudden you've got a framework of what it properly means to be human and how humans are to interact with each other. And now you see that um, same-sex marriage doesn't fit into that framework, and you can explain why. So that's just one example of what we're trying to trying to provide for you and help you kind of build that um, structure and that grammar to use. Um, you know, we're going to try to reference the confessions, which is another great way to sort of build that framework to have the catechisms where if you have a question, you know, you can go and there's a, a sort of a pre-built answer along with scripture for you. Um, but we really want to make sure that we're providing this kind of as a service to our audience. Yeah. And that's not to say that what we're advocating here is to supplant the scriptures altogether, but rather to use the scriptures to create a framework that helps us to process information. And there is a lack, even in my own life, sometimes I sense of having the proper construct by which to like succinctly be able to evaluate ideas or cultural mores in such a way that we can easily and succinctly bring the scriptures to bear. So that's why I think this is important. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to launch off tonight. Um, tra- traditionally, um, Systematic theology starts with a topic uh, called prolegomena. So we're not going to spend a lot of time in that um, because really that's sort of the academic intro. Um, One scholar that I read sort of talked about it as like clearing your throat before you actually start to talk. You get up and you kind of go, that's what prolegomena is. So we do need to talk about a a few different things. Um, So we're going to throw a lot of terms at you. I'm going to try really hard when I when I write the show notes to give you definitions and links. So if you're having uh, problems with a term or something like that, go look there. But um, there's a distinction in theology that uh, is sort of hard to get your head around. But um, it's the distinction between what's called archetypal knowledge and ectypal knowledge. So we talk about like an archetype in a in like a comic book archetype. Superman is a comic book archetype. You know, he's that that uh, hero that other heroes are patterned after. So the archetype is sort of the original. And when we talk about archetypal knowledge, that's the knowledge that God has of himself. It's perfect. It's comprehensive. It's complete. Um, And then we have ectypal knowledge, which is the copy. And that's the kind of knowledge that all other creatures can have. Um, so we have an ectypal knowledge about God. It's it's a copy. It's limited. It's never perfect um, because it's it can't be complete. Um, even if we know something that's true about God, it's never the complete truth about God because God is infinite and our knowledge can only ever be finite. Do those distinctions make sense, Jesse? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've always thought about those like the latter being throughout, especially the Old Testament. There's a knowledge of God about himself and it's as if you're in a dark room and of course it'd be impossible for you to describe what's in that room. And so what God does is throughout history, he's, it's as if he's lighting candles in that room, bringing to bear information about himself, but it's what he discloses. So there is a difference, you're right, between what God knows in perfection and what we're able to ascertain by way of his disclosure, but it's it's a copy. Yeah. And I think that's really important is that the, the ectypal knowledge that we have is a revealed knowledge. Exactly. So it's really important for us to remember that we would not be able to know anything about God unless God revealed it to us, uh, to us himself. And that's, you know, in some ways, it's kind of similar to like the internal thoughts and emotions that I have. I know them, 
But unless I reveal them to you, there's no way that you can know them because they're internal. They're not visible. Um, so that's kind of the first thing we need to understand. And and it's important to remember, too, that when we talk about God, um, we're talking by way of analogy. Now, I don't what I don't mean by that is I don't mean that, like, we um, are saying untrue things about God or that we can't know God. Um, but what I'm saying is that when I say that God is love, um, I don't mean exactly the same thing as I would if I was talking about a creature who loves somebody. When I say I love my wife and then we say Christ loves the church, um, we mean something similar. Uh, there's an analogy going on, but we don't mean exactly the same thing. And that's called uh, analogical language. So you can think about it, um, you know, sometimes people hear that and think they think like, oh, well, you're just you're not really saying things about God. But if I say to you, um, you know, this, man, this chair is hard as a rock. Um, I'm telling you something true about the chair and you can understand what I'm saying. The chair is hard. A rock is hard. And so I'm using that comparison to explain something about the chair. Now, a chair is obviously not actually as hard as a rock because a rock is much harder than a chair. But that doesn't mean that you don't know something about the chair I'm sitting in based on this analogy that I've used. So when we use terms like um, God is father or um, God is angry or God is pleased, um, we don't mean exactly the same thing as if I was to say, you know, um, my wife is angry or my wife is pleased or the dog is upset or whatever. We're using that language in a way to describe God, but we're not using that language in sort of a bare sense where, where words mean exactly the same thing. And that's important too, because there are some strains of Christian theology that want to sort of bring God down to that level where our human created finite language can actually comprehensively describe God. Um, in a way where like when we say something about God, we're saying it comprehensively and exhaustively. Um, so we have to remember that as well. Yeah. One of the things that I've learned is that, or grown to appreciate at least, is that no matter how smart I think I am or how many books I've read on something, especially about God, that some of the best advice is that everything always falls short. So, and we often forget, like you said, that language itself is incapable of actually articulating in any kind of closely comprehensive manner, who God is or what he is like. So at best, we are seeing things as through a mirror dimly. So it's important to remember that this, all this conversation is really helpful. It helps shape. It helps provide color and perspective. But still, it's only as if it's a shadowy outline of what we're talking about. So everything in some sense is metaphor and analogy. Yeah. Yeah. And so normally when we get, you know, you get through the prolegomena section, um, and we're going to do things out of the traditional order because normally Reformed theology would go to Scripture next. But um, I'm going to start with the person of the Father. And the reason that I'm saying that is because um, the subject is normally called theology proper, and it ends up being kind of an abstract study of divine attributes. And um, one thing that I found, you know, as I've studied theology over the years is just like we said earlier, theology should drive us to worship. It should drive us to right living and to service. And um, I don't worship an abstract set of attributes, right? I worship the Father. Um, 
by the mediation of the Son and by the indwelling power of the Spirit. And so rather than study kind of an abstract set of objects or an abstract set of um, attributes, we're going to focus our thoughts in on the attributes of the Father. And then next time we do um, a, a session um, in December, we're going to get to um, kind of the the Trinity and how the persons of the Trinity relate to each other and how we know that the other persons are God. So we're going to get there. Um, normally those two subjects are treated together, but this is like a 45-minute show and we, you know, we got to kind of spread things out. So I call this subject paterology, which is just a, a Greekized way of saying um, the study of the Father. So if you're looking at a, a systematic theology book, you might see it called Theology Proper or Doctor of God or something along those lines. Um, there's not a lot of differences. So so when you're looking at it, don't get wigged out by the fact that I'm calling it something else. But you should definitely so, drop that at a party, that word pot, yeah, by pot-terology, itself. Yeah. If, if nothing else out of this podcast with us, you should be able to get some super slick words that you now understand and can just drop like in in your church. Yes. So um, normally when we study the divine attributes or the attributes of the Father, we talk about two two broad categories of um, attributes. We talk about uh, the communicable attributes, which are attributes that God uh, communicates or shares with creatures in an analogical fashion, like we said. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. And the reason is because... Be- because these are attributes that God shares with us on some level, we kind of intuitively understand them a little bit better than the ones that God doesn't share with us. Um, because we have we have creaturely experience with them, we can understand the analog in the Father uh, to a greater degree intuitively than we would um, kind of ones that we have to think about more abstractly and more right. theoretically. So I'm going to run down the list real quick, um, and I'm I'm taking most of my um, thoughts uh, from my study of Mike Horton's theology, which um, you find in three different books. Um, the the sort of first and more surface level, which is the most recently published, is called Core Christianity. Um, if you're new to theology, if you've never done any theological work before or really studied this, it's a great starting point. Um, it's short. It's easy to read. Um, it's it's relatively uh, inexpensive. And then there's one called Pilgrim Theology, which is a more intermediate level. Um, it's a bit longer. It gets a little bit more technical, but it's still very approachable. Um, you could think of that as kind of like a, like a freshman intro to theology level book. And then he has a full size, um, a full size systematic single volume systematic theology called the Christian Faith. Um, all of these books follow the same basic format. They they use the same basic chapter ideas. So whichever one you get, you're going to get the same presentation. It's just a matter of depth. And so Horton breaks them up into several different communicable attributes. He talks about God's wisdom, he talks about God's knowledge, and then he talks about his God's power and how those things relate to each other. Um, he talks about God's holiness, his righteousness, and his justice, his jealousy, his wrath, his goodness, his love, and his mercy. And um, there are other ones that we could talk about that are sort of similar, um, that sort of overlap. But um, these attributes are things that are find that they're perfected in the Father. They exist in infinite perfection in God. Um, but we look to human creatures, particularly humans, but you see, you know, in the angels, you'd see some of these as well. Um, these are things that we share with the Father analogically. So this is what I'm talking about. When I say that, when I say God's wise and I say that I'm wise, 
Um, or I suppose I don't say that I'm wise. When I say that uh, our father's wise, not like our heavenly father, but our earthly father, Jesse's dad, my father-in-law, um, we don't mean exactly the same thing. And the reason for that is that um, we have to remember that the the difference between creatures and creator is not just a matter of quantitative difference. So when you talk about knowledge, for example, it's not as though I have um, I have knowledge of X numbers of facts and God has knowledge of X of greater than X number of facts, infinitely greater. It's that God's knowledge is on a whole different order. He not only does he know all facts, but he knows the facts differently. He knows them comprehensively. He knows them infinitely. He knows them in a way that they don't come from observation. He knows them because he's decreed them to be. So we have to remember that. And similar things happen with all these different attributes that um, the communicable attributes are, are God shares these attributes with us, but in a qualitatively different way. So whatever similarity there is, there's an infinitely greater dissimilarity between the way that we express these attributes and the way that God is these attributes. Right. And that by itself, like you said, should cause us to have a response of worship as Paul does in several times when he essentially states that very thing. I mean, it it compels us to understand that, like you said, it's not just quantitative but it's this sense that God's understanding of things is sourced from an entirely different place than ours. And that, of course, this goes back to the fact that even our our knowledge, even let's say our wisdom, which we would, as Christians, as Reformed people, would confirm is God-given, that that in of its sense is like of a whole different way. It's still contingent, whereas God's is not contingent at all. Right. Yeah. And, and this is, I mean, it, these are lofty concepts. So don't feel, you know, if you're listening to this and this stuff seems to be going right over your head, don't feel like you're some sort of alien because you don't understand this. Yeah, you know, sometimes, exactly. sometimes, especially in online communities like uh, Facebook groups and stuff, um, you can see people who've been studying this for a long time or even people who just, for whatever reason, they're, they pick it up and they're good at it. Um, it can be intimidating sometimes and you can feel kind of like sub-Christian because you've never heard of this term or you don't understand what it means. So um, it's really important to remember that like everybody had to start somewhere. And um, this is hard stuff. This is difficult stuff. Um, so don't feel um, don't feel bad if you don't understand it kind of on the first go around. We are the planet fitness of like theology, like judgment-free zone. Yes. Yeah. The idea is to spur one another onto love and to service and to appreciate. And I think that the only way we're going to worship God is to know more about him and to see his glory. And that will naturally lead to worship. So I'm with you. And and one of the things that I love, just as a side note, I love about theology is that because God is infinite, there's always more to learn about God. Amen. So even in in glory, in eternity, we will infinitely and eternally be learning more about our Savior. We're never going to know our Savior comprehensively. And for some people, I think that can be like a really discouraging thought. But in reality, it means that I get to study and love and know God in a deeper and more expansive and increasing way forever. My, my knowledge of God and my love for God will never be static. It will always be growing. And for me, that's just such a beautiful thought. I agree with you. It's wonderful that... As, you know, as we mature, it takes a lot more to hold our wonder. You know, as children, like we love fairy tales and that like exhausts our worldview. And then as we grow older, we become bored with those. And God is the only thing big enough to continually instill in us wonder 
and a sense of appreciation for his glory, he's just the only thing big enough. No matter how old we get, how mature we become, he is always provides something for us to glory in him for. Yeah. So so let's get into some of these um, more difficult, the, the incommunicable attributes. Let's do it. Yeah. So there's a couple that I think we sort of understand because they're the opposite of us. So we don't share them with God, but we understand what it means um, to be the opposite of these things. So we theologians talk about God being immutable, and that means God never changes. God always stays the same. And um, we have to remember that what that means is that in God's essential nature, God's nature never changes. Um, you know, sometimes we'll look at scripture and we'll see examples of God changing his mind or apparently changing his mind. Um, or we'll say, well, God was doing this in the scriptures. And then, you know, later on he was doing this. So obviously God changes because his activity changes. But when theologians talk about immutability, what they're talking about is God's nature and his character. And we'll find later that those two things are not, uh, they're not actually distinct things. But God's nature never changes. And that leads us to another divine attribute of impassibility. And impassibility means that God can't be made to suffer. Um, and and you, you'll see that those things and really all of these attributes are tied together. So God can't be made to suffer because God can't change. So if you can't change, then how could something make you suffer? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think so. Probably this is a good time to bring this up. I think oftentimes when people hear about immutability for the first time, they naturally go to, well, there was Jesus on the cross and clearly there is a suffering in the Godhead there. So how do, what do we do with that? We put that on hold until we get to Christology. <laughs> but um, the I short answer, the short answer of it is that uh, Christ has two natures, and so there's a divine nature that is unchanging and unsuffering, right. and there's a human nature that uh, is capable of suffering. And we have to even be careful there about talking about nature suffering or not suffering. Is what we're talking about is a person with two natures, and that person suffers or doesn't suffer according to each nature. But right. we'll we'll get into all of that, um, and and that this is a good point too. Is that we ask for questions, and and this happens in systematic theology. Every subject is tied together, and so we got a lot of questions um, this week that were really about Christology um, or Trinitarian theology, which which is normally part of this, but we're going to talk about it next week. So we're going to put those questions on hold. So if you don't get them answered this week, just remember we're going to come uh, in three weeks or at the beginning of December, and we're going to answer a lot of those questions. Um, but yeah, that's a great question, and we have to remember too that immutability and impassibility is not um, – you know, it's not this stoic idea of like this perfect static being that never changes and never experiences anything. Um, we have to be careful when we talk about God experiencing something, but it's a fact, it's a biblical fact that God um, is engaged in the world, right? right? He is active with people. He expresses himself in ways that um, are using uh, human emotion or the language of human emotions as a way to reveal what's what's going on, um, and so we have to we have to temper these abstract philosophical concepts with the biblical revelation. So it's not accurate. Um, so, for example, you know, our kind of like the go-to Bible verse that everybody memorizes is John three sixteen, right? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That uh, oh man, I just forgot John three sixteen. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. Uh, that that whosoever believes in him 
<laughs> shall never perish, right? And so there's that section that God gave his son. And we see other other portions of the scripture that talk about, you know, God did not withhold his own son, um, but gave him up. Now, um, the union between the father and the son could never be destroyed, right? right. It could never be changed. It could never be affected. Um, and we'll get to why that is. But what we're talking about here is we have to acknowledge that there's a relational change or a relational, um, I don't want to say change, but there's a relational dynamic. And if we if we take impassibility and immutability to the extent that we have to explain away the passages which say God seems, you know, the passages which seem to say that God really gave something up when his son was sent to earth and died, um, then we've, I think we've strayed outside of what we want to do. Um, so we have to balance those two things. And and sometimes we have to throw our hands up in the air and go, I don't know how to balance those two things. Absolutely. Right. That's another thing you learn when you're doing systematic theology is a lot of time, you know, systematic theology is kind of one part science and one part art. And the science of it is um, the logic and the philosophy and kind of building your Lego structure where everything fits together neatly. And, uh, the art of it is learning that you're going to have mystery and you're going to have inconsistencies. And the, the art of it is figuring out kind of where do you put that mystery and where do you put those inconsistencies in your system? Um, so if you think about it, I, I like the analogy of Legos because like I said, Legos, they fit neatly together. But every once in a while when you're building something with Legos, you realize that like you don't have the right piece. You need one that's got four, four dots and you've only got three. And so you have to figure out like, well, what do I do? And sometimes you can fit that third, that three piece block in a spot where a four piece goes and you don't see it. And this isn't to say like, well, we want to hide the inconsistencies in our system, but like a structure, if you, if you build your system with inconsistencies in the wrong place, eventually that's going to come out and the system's going to crumble. So there is kind of an art to figuring out where do I put the inconsistencies? Where am I comfortable with inconsistencies? Sometimes you have to look at it and say, well, I, I can't reconcile this point with this point. Which doctrine is more fundamental to the faith? And then you say, all right, well, then the inconsistency or the mystery is going to go where the, you know, where the less vital or the less significant doctrine is. Right, because at the end of the day, we're trying to describe something that is absolutely indescribable. So we're using, again, this limited idea of language to build about a description of God. But we're doing that because we want to see him high and lifted up. That we, exactly. we want to understand something more about his character and move in a direction where we can appreciate him more. So I like the idea of Legos, like you are putting together something, like you're building it piece by piece. And sometimes you get to like a point where you've built and you're like, I got to take that apart a little bit and right. try to re-understand how I put this together so it's cogent and it's biblical and it makes sense. It comports with reality. And then right. sometimes you know, like a, there's a stray Lego piece and you just step on it and want to run through a wall. So <laughs> there's, it's, it's complicated. So that's why this is great to just like kind of talk about the characteristics of God. And uh, we should all be challenged to really meditate on those, like not just purely academically, but to be looking for them every time we open up the scripture, scriptures, to be looking for the glory of God and like you said, to see his prevailing, especially for mutability, to see his this prevailing kind of character of God that is constant without getting caught up too much into, you know, like, does God change his mind? And what about the conversation with Abraham? And it can go on like, it can die the death of a million qualifications really quickly, such that we fail to really appreciate how holy and amazing God is, because we just get caught up in like the one block Lego pieces and trying to fit them all. 
Yeah, and, and just to put some biblical feet on this doctrine of immutability. So um, I don't have it in front of me. I'm trying to find it quick. But in the, in the book of Hebrews, um, the author makes this beautiful point that the covenant that God makes with his people is secure. And it's secure for two reasons. The first is the character of God, that God makes a promise and that God will never break his promise. And then he roots it even deeper into God's very nature. And he says that God swore an oath on himself. And the oath is secure because the thing upon which the oath was sworn is unchangeable. And so when we think about the doctrine of immutability, you know, we can get this kind of abstract, oh, yeah, well, God never changes. But, you know, God made a covenant with us. And, and people make covenants with each other, and they break their covenants all the time. And some of that right. is uh, – most of that is probably a result of sin. They make promises they shouldn't. They just are inconsistent. But sometimes it's not a matter of, of sin. Sometimes it's just a matter of consequences and results and changes in a person's life. Um, I might promise to be, you know, I implicitly promise to be to work on time every morning. But if I get a flat tire tomorrow, I'm going to have to break that promise. And the fact that God's nature is unchanging, that he cannot be made to change, he cannot be made to suffer, he cannot be made to have a lack, which is another way to think about impassibility, means that he can never be made to break his promise. And that's central to our faith. Right. As reformed Christians, the stability of God and the, the stability of his covenant that he made with us is rooted ultimately in a covenant that God made with his son in spirit in eternity past. Right. The reason that the covenant of grace is secure is because it's founded upon the covenant of redemption in eternity past. And we'll, I'm sure we'll get into covenant theology and all that stuff at a later point. For but sure. if God's promises were not secure, then what are we doing? Why are That's we even why are we bothering with this? But the fact that he's immutable means that his promises are secure. That which is, is, is like such glorious. An, yeah, it's you're right. It's such an amazing truth. Uh, sorry, I just got wicked excited there because That's fine. I, I'm I'm just feeling pumped up from that because what you said about circumstances is right on. So let's presume like you make a promise to somebody and you have every intent of following through, which let's be honest that there's a lot presumed there because in our sinful nature, sometimes we make promises and when in the moment they don't suit us, we find every excuse that we can bring to bear that says we don't have to fill the promise. So right. even aside from that, circumstantially, God is not obviously does not have to worry about circumstances. So he makes a promise knowing full well that he can absolutely deliver on it. I think the verse you're referring to is, is a Hebrews 6.13. For when God Probably. made a promise to Abraham, yes. since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So you're right. We're going, we're going to the source. This is God who is not, um, none of his behaviors determined by circumstance. In fact, of course, he's sovereign and controls all things. So when he makes a promise, not only is he good and therefore he will see it through volitionally, but there's nothing that can prevent him or will prevent him from bringing that promise to its fulfillment. Yeah, and then it goes on in verse 17 says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Boom. So, and then there's this beautiful, we have this as a sure, steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now, you know, you look at that and it seems really complicated, but when you break it down, that is, the author is saying, God can't change Therefore, he will fill his promise. And God knew that we needed that certainty. So he told us, I can't change and I will fulfill my promise. And I mean, I don't know how much better it gets than that. Exactly. It doesn't. It doesn't. You're right. It's beautiful. So um, I, I, I don't know where to go from there. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I think we just we just wrap it up. No. Um, so there's a couple more. There's a couple more attributes to just touch base on. Um, there, there's an attribute called aseity or aseity, um, and it comes from a Latin phrase which basically means like in himselfness. And what this phrase means is that God is completely, um, completely equipped or completely existent with no, no no other dependencies. God doesn't depend on creation. He doesn't depend on us. He doesn't depend on anything for his existence or for his satisfaction or for his happiness or for his joy. God has everything he needs in himself in order to be who he is and to exist. Now, when we get into the Trinity, we'll talk a little bit about how that works with the the divine persons and things like that. So remember, we're talking about the Father right now. The Father is self-sustained. The Father is in himself, right? He doesn't need anything outside of himself. Now, the Son and the Spirit are not outside of the Father. Um, So there's there's a complicated way that we have to talk about that. We'll get that to the next time. And then the last attribute, and this is the one that I want to kind of spend uh, the most sort of explanatory time on, is a doctrine called divine simplicity. Now, sometimes people hear that and they think, man, you must be really arrogant if you think God is simple to explain. That's not at all what this doctrine is. It's not that God is simple in terms of easy. It's that God is simple in terms of not composite. He's not made of parts. He's not divided in himself, right? So when we think about humans, We're composite beings. So you can go on like the very base level is we're matter and we're spirit. We have a body and we have a spirit. So there's two parts to us. But then even among those those two broad parts, you know, our bodies, it's easy for us to understand. We're made of parts. I have eyeballs. I have hands. I have fingers. I have arms, right? I've got internal organs. Those are all parts that are stuck together to make my body. But then we can look over even in our spirits, talk about how I have knowledge and I have wisdom and I have will and I have emotions. All of those are parts as well. So when we talk about God not being composed of parts, um, right, we've got the Westminster Confession. Uh, I think it's chapter 2, verse 1 or section 1 says that God is not uh, God is not a body, parts, or passions. Now, sometimes people read it and think body parts, but it's body, comma, parts, comma, or passions. So what, what there we have is God is spirit. He's not a body. God is not composed of parts, that's divine simplicity, and God does not have passions, which is uh, impassibility. And there's a a whole lot of reasons why this is important. But, um, you know, it bears saying that when we talk about these divine attributes, right, our attributes are are distinct from our being, from our essence. Um, They are expressions of our essence, but they're, they're not our essence. But in God... The attributes are not distinct from his being in person, right? So my uh, my 
attribute of whatever it might be, we'll just say intelligence or emotion, my attributes are not fundamental to my existence. Um, we could conceive of Tony with a different set of attributes. And I suppose it's an interesting philosophical discussion to talk about, well, which attributes could you conceive of Tony uh, not having, right? Well, we couldn't conceive of Tony, um, Tony not being human, right? If Tony's not human, then, then we're not thinking about Tony anymore. But maybe we think about Tony where everything is exactly the same about Tony, except he has blue eyes instead of brown eyes. Right. Or he has he has blonde hair instead of uh, black hair um, or he is um, he's introverted instead of extroverted. Right. We can think about we can conceive of a person, a human person with different attributes. But with God, his attributes and his essence are one. They're simple. They're not composite. So we couldn't conceive of a God who is not immutable and still be conceiving of God, right? We can't, right. there's nothing, um, the technical language is there's nothing accidental about God, meaning there's nothing, no attribute of God is not part of his essence. Um, you know, another way to think about it is there's no possible world in which God is not omnipresent. And that's just a way to say like, to think about God not being omnipresent is completely illogical. Um, it doesn't make any sense. It's like thinking about a triangle with four sides. Um, so that's really important is that that also plays into the why God is unchangeable because nothing about God is optional. Nothing about God is accidental. So you, as I said, like all of these incommunicable attributes tie into each other and are integrated with each other in ways that um, at first blush you don't notice. But when you really start to think about it, um, even something like unchangeability God's not composed of one part potential and one part actual like humans are, right? I have potential to do certain things or to be certain things. And there's a part of me that's actualized or actual. Well, God is entirely actualized. There's nothing left in God that he could potentially be that he's not. And so God can't change because there's no potential for him to change. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, it does. And this is important, at least to me, because then this is why we're starting at exactly this point is because we need to understand that God having accidental attributes is impossible. And it's just as much a law as saying, well, three times three could equal like 12, for instance, right. it's just non-logical. And when we start to erode the foundation for saying, well, God can be something other than he actually is something other than he's disclosed in scripture or something other than we understand him to be, by revelation of the spirit, then all of a sudden we are no, we're, we're in a foreign land. We, we've automatically diverged and any point from which we outwork from then on is going to be far and away from what the scriptures actually teach us. So we, we have to start here and we do have to appreciate exactly what you're saying about the attributes of God, like being, you know, entirely part of his nature and character. And he's, he's unlike us because he's going to be devoid of like that complexity of composition, like physical or metaphysical, like to, to be philosophical about it. Obviously, he lacks spatial and temporal parts. It's part of this, again, is not necessarily trying to understand in its most minute and nuanced detail what this all means in its language, but rather to appreciate and to worship those things. Right. And, and we have no concept of what it actually means to be a simple being. 
Exactly. Um, you know, if you, you try to think of examples in uh, the created order, and every time you think of an example, you can break it down further. So right. you might think of like, well, water. Water is simple. Well, no, it's it's composed of hydrogen and oxygen. Okay, well, hydrogen. Hydrogen is simple. Well, no, hydrogen is composed of protons and, and electrons. Okay, well, maybe a proton is simple. Well, no, proton is composed of quarks. And you, you just keep drilling down, and everything is made of parts. And you talk about God, and he's so radically different than that because he's not made of parts. He's not composed of things. And and I think, too, where that really plays in is that God's emotions and his character and his nature, those things are all equally fundamental to who God is. Exactly. God's wrath, God's justice, God's love, God's grace or his mercy. Um, and we, you know, those are grace and mercy are interesting kinds of things because they're sort of responsive, but God's love and God's wrath, for example, or God's justice is even a better way to talk about it. Both of those things are equally fundamental and, and indispensable to who God is. So it's really kind of vogue in some circles to try to pit God's love against his justice or God's holiness. Even, even in reform circles, um, you know, R.C. Sproul has this lecture where he talks about the trisagion, which is the holy, holy, holy. And he talks about how like, well, holiness is the only attribute that's elevated by being repeated three times. And then he immediately wants to talk about like, but we should be careful because, you know, we got divine simplicity. Well, I was reading in the Psalms today and there's that Psalm where it's repeatedly his love endures forever, his love endures forever, his love endures forever, like 15 or 16 times. Well, why aren't we talking about love being elevated to the 15 power or whatever? And, and the point is that what scripture presents us is a God who is unchanging and unchangeable and unshakable. And the reason for that is because he is one. He is fundamentally a unity. His, his attributes and his character and his nature are a single, simple thing. Um, and because it's a simple thing, that's what makes it so complicated because we have no idea what that actually means. We just know that it's true. That's well said. We are a people of delineated nature. We can separate and we can pull apart even just like emotional components. So we have no sense, like you said, of what it means. And this is where it just fills us with like, Paul, we should just like drop a benediction right here and just worship because we find that in God, this simplicity just makes our minds do a somersault because we cannot even conceive of a realm of possibility in which there is just a seamless unification of all of these things because that's not our essence. It's not our reality. So it's beautiful that in a sense, we can even come to the place where like you and I can just like talk about this even casually because it's such a profound truth. And what a blessing that God in his infinite wisdom allows us to see just a glimpse of that and to say, this is wild. Like it just shows us that God is unchartered, yeah. unknown, like totally otherworldly. And that's where we get both this combination of, I just want to, I want to fall down. I want to high five him, but also like I have this sense of holy dread that I just yeah. cannot even comprehend what is being spoken of here. Yeah. And we'll revisit uh, simplicity when we get to our next episode on the Trinity, uh, because sneak peek, divine simplicity is actually why we're monotheists rather than tritheists, right? Monotheist meaning one God, Spoiler tritheist alert. meaning three gods, right? Spoiler alert. Um, divine simplicity is why we are monotheists. Um, and we'll explain how that works later. And, and this whole idea that God can't change, 
uh, to, to kind of fast forward a little bit to the Trinity, there's a controversy raging in, in reform circles uh, called the eternal subordination of the Son or eternal uh, functional subordination. Um, you know, sometimes they call it like relationships of authority and submission. And there's one side that wants to say that the Son in his very um, existence as the Son is submissive to the Father as part of like who the Son is. And the, the, the problem with that is that it really shatters divine simplicity because, you know, we'll find out later that there's one will in the Trinity and that one will can only have one will because of divine simplicity. You can't have two wills because if you have two wills, then you can't have divine simplicity. And in order for the son to be submissive to the father, he has to have a will that is not the same will as the father. So these these doctrines are really, really vital. And if you get them wrong, you very quickly spiral off out of control into some sort of territory that ends up not being a Christian theology. And we were talking about respected teachers in the church, Wayne Grudem, Bruce Ware, people that are longstanding, well-respected scholars who have really said some things that, you know, looking at them, you're going, what in the world? Where did you get this from? Um, so we'll get into that more. But I really want our audience to understand that like the, even though these are abstract and even though they're difficult to understand, it's really important to do the work and spend the time to really uh, get this as much as you're capable. It's definitely worth meditating on because the practical outworkings of stuff like this is when you are in the valley of the shadow of death, knowing that you can rely on God for his unchangeable character, that he, his promises are true and secure that he is that anchor for your soul, which is really glorious language, like just absolutely beautiful and comforting. Uh, like that is desperately, especially like we're recording this more or less on like the eve of the U.S. election, all right. of this uncertainty about so many things in our world and to understand from the pages of scripture that God is a sure and true foundation in all things that he can be trusted and that in some really profound way. He who is unchangeable is the one that, in fact, brings change into our life by regeneration and progressive sanctification. So it's not just an idea of, of sitting back as like kind of the armchair theologian and saying, like, these are really fun terms. And yes, isn't it great to know more about God? But this is the very kind of thing that's going to strengthen our harmony with God in terms of coming into his presence uh, in a kind of robust manner in which we want to fall on our knees and worship him and appreciate him lovingly adore him and then go out and serve him better. Like we cannot be compelled to do that on our own volition, except if we are willing to know more about him and to appreciate what we do know about him. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I want to just touch base on, on two more attributes that I think we on one level understand, but because we sort of understand it, we get it wrong. Um, and so we talk about God's omnipotence and his omnipresence. Right. Omnip that, that prefix omni kind of means all or everywhere or every. And then omnipotence would be God's um, all powerful. And then om omnipresence would be that God exists everywhere. And the reason that we get this wrong is because we're thinking in those quantitative terms. Right. We talked about how God um, it, it isn't just that God is 
you know, in, in the case of omnipotence, it's not just that God has more strength than us. It's that God's strength exists on a different, a different realm or a different plane entirely. Omnipresence doesn't just mean that God fills more, fills infinitely more space than us. It's that God interacts with space in a totally different way. And so we think about, uh, think about yourself, think about your own human body, right? So you occupy a certain number of square inches, um, or cubic inches, we're not two-dimensional, cubic inches, right? (laughs) And different parts of you are more powerful than others. So my arm uh, has more power in it than my pinky, right? And, And we can even talk about power in different ways. But my power is not equally distributed in the space that I exist in, right? Are you tracking with me? I'm with you. I just wish people could see the... The, the dance gestures I'm doing, that you're making explain, right yeah. now with like how you're you're showing your bicep, it, you are pretty ripped. Um, so so my my presence is not only restricted in terms of space, but the my power is restricted in terms of just the space I'm in. I have no power in Pennsylvania, um, where Jesse is right now. Right. I have no influence right now, except for maybe I could have Jess, I could ask Jesse to do something. But in terms of my direct ability to bring about change, I have no power whatsoever. But in this, you know, maybe like, I don't know, spitballing at like seven cubic feet or cubic uh, feet worth of space that I occupy, I have limited ability to, to bring about states of change. But even in that space, it's not, uh, it's not uniform across it. So when we get to God and we talk about omnipresence and omni, uh, omnipotence, God is fully present everywhere. God's entire being, because it's simple, because it can't be divided, God's entire being and his full power is present everywhere, in all places. And then we can talk about at all times. Right, I exist as a time temporal creature that's moving through time. Right, I have a limited impact in the moment. I have I've had impact in the past, and my actions will have some impact going into the future. But those are limited. Right, there's going to be a point where there's no discernible impact that I have on future events. God's not like that. God is fully present in all of His power in every place at every time. As well as outside of every place and outside of every time, whatever that means. So we get that wrong because we think that like, well, God is everywhere. So that must mean like, you know, he's everywhere the same way. Like I would be everywhere, except I'm, I'm only in a certain place. But if I was everywhere, then that's how God must be everywhere. But God is everywhere in a fundamentally different way than we are existing in our local place. So I think that these omni attributes actually are, are a totally different category. They're not really communicable. They're not really incommunicable because there's some things we share and then there's things that are totally different that are not communicated to us at all. Right. Those are kind of like their own rubric altogether. Right. Again, they're they're They make your mind do a somersault. Right. So um, I did want to get to one question that we had in the, in the, the group here. Um, we got a lot of questions, and like I said earlier, a lot of these questions are actually questions that will fit better in a later episode. So we're going to write them down. We'll come back to them as we get to those episodes. We're coming um, for you. Yep. But Jake Swink asked, um, how can we be so critical of, quote, heresy, end quote, in this realm when it is such a confusing realm? 
And, and I really resonate with Jake's question. And the reason I resonate with Jake's question is because when I look back um, at some of the things I wrote and said and did, um, I'm doing a, a like widespread renovation of my, my blog, which is a separate thing from this podcast. And reading some of the articles that I wrote, even like two or three years ago, I'm reading them and I'm like, man, I don't know if I want to keep this on the, the website because my position is totally different than it was. Or I'll read it and say, man, I just said something really stupid then. Um, so I resonate with Jake's question, and I think there, there's kind of two answers. Um, one, we can we can talk about heresy in these areas because God's revelation is clear, right? When we get to Scripture, we'll talk about the, the attributes of Scripture, and clarity is one of them, right? We can't read um, we can't read the Bible honestly and come up with a God who doesn't know the future, right? Right. I, Open theists have to do all sorts of crazy gymnastics in order to get to a God who doesn't know the future. They have to redefine what it means to know. They have to redefine what the future means. They have to redefine a lot of things. Um, I don't know how you can read that passage we just read, which is there for edification and there to give a certainty based in God's unchanging nature, and then somehow come away with it thinking, well, God is actually changing. Not only are you ignoring the plain meaning of the scriptures in front of you, but you're undercutting any sort of assurance of salvation or assurance of God's faithfulness that we can have. So I think the first part of Jake's question, the answer is that scripture, for the most part on these, is, is clear, right? Simplicity, some of these more complex things, you have to extrapolate a little bit. And so we should hold them a little bit looser. Um, but again, like I said, simplicity is what makes the Trinity what it is. The The doctrine of the Trinity doesn't work without divine simplicity. So sometimes we can look at other um, doctrines that are really clear and recognize that there's some logical uh, entailments or requirements like simplicity um, that can make it clear. The other way that I think we can be critical is that we're not, we're not the first people who've thought about this. Right, we're coming up on the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. We have the Reformed Confessions, which are kind of the most comprehensive um, statement of theology that we can have. Um, you know, obviously they're not fully comprehensive, but they're well thought out. They're tried and tested. They're stable, and they've they've been proven to be good viable interpretations of scripture. But even before the Reformation, we've got um, you know 1,500 years. Um, before the Reformation of reflection on on these things. So you can look at people in the patristic era, you can look at people in the medieval era, you can look at people in the reform, you know, the Reformation era. And by and large, these divine attributes, um, this theology proper stuff that we're talking about, by and large, there hasn't been a lot of controversy on some of these core things on, on who the Father is and what what it means to be God. There hasn't been a lot of debate and discussion. So even though it's it's complicated, we have really good shoulders to stand on. So I think we can take a look at what the church has said over the last 2,000 years, and we have a good place to say and to compare when someone like Clark Pinnock or Greg Boyd comes along and says, yeah, God doesn't know the future, and he really is just kind of developing as he goes. We can look at that and say, no, 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 that doesn't work. And here's why, because 2,000 years worth of Christians probably didn't get that wrong. Right. Um, you know, we have to always go back to the scriptures. But at the end of the day, the scriptures are the final arbiter of truth. But we also have an entire hit tradition of interpretation to help us understand what those scriptures mean. Yeah, so much of the time, it's not that the scripture is unclear. It's that we find the truth to be inconvenient. And so you're right, there has to be all these gymnastics to kind of move beyond the plenary plain meaning 
and try to make it say something that it's not. So there's a lot of firm ground to stand on when we're trying to confront heretical worldviews or opinions. And there's, like I said, the tradition is a great way to do that because it's, it's not just that tradition was born out of, well, this is the way people have always thought, but this is the way through the ages, there's been all this time for accountability for what's being processed. Mm-hmm. And it's been very much refined down. And these are like, you know, distilled salient truths from the Bible summed up in a way that are easy for us to understand and take with us to, again, provide a framework so that we can process these ideas. So it's, of course, you want to always process those by looking and going back to the source, which is the scripture itself. But I find that on almost any subject where there is controversy, if we would spend our time meditating and studying the scriptures, that we're bound to find very plain truths upon which we can stand. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that uh, that should probably wrap it up for tonight. Um, Jesse, do you have, as the elder brother, do you have any closing thoughts for us? So I want to say two things. One is that I'm stoked after this to just worship God. I mean, this just gets me pumped up to be able to appreciate a little bit more about who he is, both in the sense that there are some things that I can think about that really are just in the truest sense of the word awesome. And there are equally things that make me just say, I can't understand him. And that just makes me want to worship him all the more. So that's the first thing. Second thing is this, I would be remiss if I wasn't to say that with all the stuff we've been talking about tonight, these characteristics of God in particular, theology proper, how in my own life I have not, or have rather very much benefited from others who have just exhibited that in just practical ways and how they trust the Lord, how they pray how they read the scriptures, their fidelity to Jesus. And because my mother's birthday is coming up, happy birthday, mom, I wanted to just say how much I appreciate that in my parents. So if, if you have kids or if you've benefited from growing up in a Christian household, that's like a crazy, amazing blessing that God gives us. Godly parents who live out this kind of theology and make it so natural to, for me, it's always been natural to want to jump into these things because there's been an interest in the part of my parents but more than that, when it's come time to actually explain them, process them, and understand them, there was there was no gap because what I saw reflecting the scriptures, no matter how complicated it got, as somebody tried to explain to me or as I tried to study it, I saw it lived out. And there is nothing that replaces living out this truth uh, in your daily life. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it any better myself. Do you have any uh, recommendations by any chance, Tony, if somebody wanted to read or perhaps listen to more of this type of thing? It's funny you say that. I do. So we have a special promotion that we've set up with Audible. Um, you can get a free trial of Audible if you go to uh, audibletrial.com slash brotherhood. Um, let me make sure that's actually the address because if it's not, then we get nothing. Um <laughs> But the way Audible works is if you do this free trial, um, Audible, you pay $15 a month and you get a credit every month. And that credit gets you um, an audiobook of your choice. So if you sign up for the free trial, then you get a credit along with your first free month. And so you get a free book. Um, And so, yes, audibletrial.com slash brotherhood. And all of the books, or Pilgrim Theology, which I mentioned earlier, and um, Core Christianity are both available on Audible. 
Um, so if you are interested in this and you want to just kind of get a jump on where we're going next, you can pick up either of those uh, books on Audible and listen through them. Um, Core Christianity is actually narrated by Mike Horton himself, which is great. Um, I, I listen to the White Horse Inn uh, kind of like religiously. So I already, when I'm reading Mike Horton's books, I already hear them in Mike Horton's voice. But uh, if you're not a theology groupie like myself, uh, you can actually listen to him read his own books, which is really helpful. Um, so, so check that out. Um, also, I mean, Institutes of the Christian Religion, we mentioned last week by uh, John Calvin, some tough stuff, but um, it's kind of the gold standard as far as Reformed theology goes. Um, and, and just dive in. I mean, a lot of times you get these books and it's hard to get started and you just have to get started. Um, you can't really try to make a run into it. You just have to set aside some time um, and just go. Um, and it'll it'll pay dividends, I promise you. It's worth it. It is. All right, well, that just about does it, and uh, we will see you next week. What if I'm far from-